First of May in the year of our salvation, 2007, the beginning of the month dedicated to Mary Most Holy. And this is the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, and you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Where you sleep out every night and the only law is right, back in the saddle again, We're going to hear today from St. Peter Chrysologus, a section of one of his sermons, which is actually the second reading from the Office of Readings today, which is Tuesday in the fourth week of Easter. We are delighted to have as our guest today, St. Peter Chrysologus, St. Peter of the Golden Speech or Golden Word. That was a title that he was given in about the 9th century. Now, Peter was Bishop of Ravenna, and that's in northern Italy along the coast. It was a very, very important city. It was an imperial city and a metropolitan sea. Now, we don't know much about Peter's life. We think he was born at Imola in about 380. And sometime between 425 and 429, he became Bishop of Ravenna. And around 448, he wrote a letter to Eutyches, uh, who was in Constantinople, a priest in Constantinople who was concerned with all of these different Christological problems. And Peter pressed him to submit to the decisions and the teachings of the Bishop of Rome, who was at that time Pope Leo the Great, and to accept what he said because he was the successor of Peter the Apostle. Now, Peter Chrysologus died sometime between 449 and 458, and that date of 458 that we have is when Leo of Rome uh, wrote to Peter's successor, and so Peter had to be dead by then, and that's why we can come up with that date, that Terminus Ad Quem of 458. We have uh, some few authentic works of uh, Peter Chrysologus. We have a letter of his, and we have 168 sermons in an 8th century collection, and about 15 sermons scattered in others. And in his preaching, we hear a highly trained rhetor. Uh, You might remember another podcast in which I talked about the divisions of rhetoric and the questions that they would use to interrogate texts in the division of rhetoric called Inventio. Well, we have an echo of that here, of these questions of the who, what, why, where, when, and how, and so forth. You can hear those maybe being answered in this, uh, this little piece of the sermon that we have today which is actually taken from the second reading of the Office of Readings for today. But Peter preaches with sincere warmth 
and he uses this rhetoric these tools of rhetoric in or as a as a way of communicating more freely with his people his great love for them and his great respect for them you'll hear uh in in this uh, selection uh how much he esteems his people now chrysologus comments often on the bible in his sermons and uh, today you'll hear him uh, quoting from a letter of the Apostle Paul. And from Chrysologus we also learn a great deal about the liturgy of Ravenna. And in fact there is a great liturgical language in this section of the sermon that we're about to hear. His sermons uh, commonly address problems of his own day as good preaching should. And so uh, they are going to always concern the doctrine of the incarnation, grace, and how to live like a Christian. In other words, they address Christian morality. And in his works, Peter also supports very strongly the primacy of the Bishop of Rome because he is the successor of Peter. So Chrysologus uh, really gives us insight, great insight, into 5th century northern Italy and the ongoing problems that they were having with uh, pagans and with the Jews of their day and with different Christian heresies, especially about the Incarnation, about the person of Christ. He gives us a wonderful snapshot of what it was like to be a bishop in his time. Now, as you listen to this selection from Peter's sermon number 108, tune your ears to how Peter uses pairs of concepts. This is how he will help his listener uh, make better connections and come to a deeper understanding of what he's driving at. And he compares and he contrasts these pairs in patterns, which was a very common tool in ancient rhetoric. For example, he'll use a pattern called synchesis, in which the pairs are mirrored in the same order, A, B, and A, B. And he also uses a chiasmus, a chiastic pattern. This comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. Because if you take a pattern like AB and you put it directly over BA, you can connect A and B together with an X pattern. And so the Greeks called this chiasmus. And so you get the pattern of ABBA. And these subtleties of these patterns, uh, they both delight and they stimulate the mind of the one listening to them. Because remember, in the ancient world, they were used to rhetoric, right? And they, they thought not just in terms of words, but also in concepts. The way Latin is so beautiful because it, it makes you hold concepts and hold words like in the air like a juggler until the, the, the speaker comes to the end of the sentence because the key word of the sentence might be the very last word. Or if they're speaking periodically, perhaps the whole paragraph and all the concepts will be also linked together in these patterns. And, be, and they could hear these things, you see. And we also have to learn to hear them and identify them when we are digging into our patristic readings like we're doing in these, uh, in these little podcasts. That's why I'm talking about ancient rhetoric and the tools and the divisions and the things that they used to do. So tune your ears to listen to these pairs contrasting and complementing each other as we move now into sermon 108 a selection from it by saint peter chrysologus bishop of ravenna
ex sermonibus sancti Petri Chrysologi Episcopi. Obsegrovos per misericordiam Dei. Rogat Paulus imo per Paulum rogat Deus, quia plus amari vult quam timeri. Rogat Deus, quia non tam dominus esse vult quam pater. Rogat Deus per misericordiam ne vindicet per rigorem. Audi rogantem dominum. Videte, videte in me corpus vestrum, membra vestra, vestra viscera, ossa vestra, vestrum sanguinem. I appeal to you by the mercy of God. This appeal is made by Paul, or rather, it is made by God through Paul, because of God's desire to be loved rather than feared, to be a father rather than a lord. God appeals to us in his mercy to avoid having to punish us in his severity. Listen to the Lord's appeal. In me, I want you to see your own body, your members, your heart, your bones, your blood. You may fear what is divine, but why not love what is human? You may run away from me as the Lord, but why not run to me as your Father? Perhaps you are filled with shame for causing my bitter passion. Do not be afraid. This cross inflicts a mortal injury not on me, but on death. These nails no longer pain me, but only deepen your love for me. I do not cry out because of these wounds, but through them I draw you into my heart. My body was stretched on the cross as a symbol not of how much I suffered, but of my all-embracing love. I count it no less to shed my blood. It is the price I have paid for your ransom. Come then, return to me, and learn to know me as your Father, who repays good for evil, love for injury, and boundless charity for piercing wounds. Listen now to what the Apostle urges us to do. I appeal to you, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. By this exhortation of his, Paul has raised all men to priestly status. How marvelous is the priesthood of the Christian! For he is both the victim that is offered on his own behalf and the priest who makes the offering. He does not need to go beyond himself to seek what he is to immolate to God. With himself and in himself, he brings the sacrifice he is to offer God for himself. The victim remains and the priest remains, always one and the same. Immolated, the victim still lives. The priest who immolates cannot kill. Truly, it is an amazing sacrifice in which a body is offered without being slain and blood is offered without being shed. The Apostle says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Brethren, this sacrifice follows the pattern of Christ's sacrifice, by which he gave his body as a living immolation for the life of the world. He really made his body a living sacrifice, because, though slain, he continues to live. In such a victim, death receives its ransom, but the victim remains alive. Death itself suffers a punishment, 
This is why death for the martyrs is actually a birth and their end a beginning. Their execution is the door to life, and those who were thought to have been blotted out from the earth shine brilliantly in heaven. Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy. The prophet said the same thing, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have prepared a body for me. Each of us is called to be both a sacrifice to God and his priest. Do not forfeit what divine authority confers on you. Put on the garment of holiness. Gird yourself with a belt of chastity. Let Christ be your helmet. Let the cross on your forehead be your unfailing protection. Your breastplate should be the knowledge of God that he himself has given you. Keep burning continually the sweet-smelling incense of prayer. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Let your heart be an altar. Then, with full confidence in God, present your body for sacrifice. God desires not death, but faith. God thirsts not for blood, but for self-surrender. God is appeased not by slaughter, but by the offering of your free will. Induere sanctitatis stolam, precingere baltium castitatis, sit in velamento capitis tui Christus, crux in frontis tui munimine perseveret, peccatori tu apone divine science sacramentum, in odorem timiam sempre orationis accende, arripe gladium spiritus, Altare cortum pone, et sic corpus tuum admove dei securus ad victimam. Deus fidem, non mortem querit, votum non sanguinem sitit, placatur voluntate non nece. That was part of Sermon 108 by St. Peter Chrysologus. And you can hear the great love that he had for his people and uh, the esteem he had for them, especially in describing them as a priestly people, uh, making sure that they were to identify themselves with Christ's own priesthood. It was very beautiful. And I want to take uh, a look at a pair of concepts that he presented. Uh, let's look at uh, he, how he used fear and love. Uh, he talked about how we fear the divine, because of course it's so great we can't you know, grasp it, and yet we can love in God what is human. We love in Christ what is human. Okay, now what he's doing, of course, is he's showing how Christ is both divine and human. This is part of that ongoing Christological controversy in the fourth and the fifth centuries, right? But I want to take this concept of fear and love in a slightly different direction and talk about attrition and contrition. Now you've probably heard the word contrition before because of the act of contrition that we learn when we go to confession. Uh, we have to be sorry for our sins and that's what we mean by contrition. 
but we can be sorry for our sins in a couple of different ways. There's the less perfect way of being sorry for our sins, and that's fear, and the more perfect way of being sorry because of love. We fear God because of the punishments, but we should love God because he is all good and deserving of all our love. And so in the act of contrition, we express both those kinds of fear. I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but then there's the more perfect love, or the more perfect reason to be uh, to hate your sins, and that's because you love God, who is deserving of all our love, and we hurt him, and we hurt our relationship with him when we sin. This is one of the reasons why the act of contrition is so very important. It's not just an empty formula that recite, uh, we recite at that particular point. It's packed, especially that traditional, that old-fashioned act of contrition, which I think is the very best one to learn. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. That's the attrition part. But most of all, because I have offended thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. That's the contrition part. And then the act of contrition goes on to express the, the other things that you have to have in order to receive absolution validly. And that's the firm purpose of amendment and the desire to do penance and so forth. So the act of contrition, every word, every part of that act of contrition is extremely important. And sometimes you will hear priests, especially older priests who were tra trained in the old-fashioned way, they even start the words of absolution or the formula before you've even finished the act of contrition. And that's not just because they you know, are trying to hurry things up, and that may be part of it, but because they were trained to give absolution as soon as they have heard the proper expression of uh, of intention of being there. And so when they hear that you properly uh, hate your sins because you dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, well, see, that's sufficient to receive absolution. There is a more perfect motive, of course, because of love, but attrition, the fear of punishment, and the fear of hell is enough of a motivation in order to receive absolution validly, even though there is a more perfect reason, and that's love. And so sometimes they uh, they will start right in on the words of absolution before you've even finished your act you know your your act of contrition. Now I want to take this in another direction. Also, after talking about the fear and the love part, let's think about the priesthood of the Christian that Peter Chrysologus talks about in his sermon. Now we know that all of the baptized uh, are priests in a way. They all share in the priesthood of Christ. Everyone, all baptized people, offer sacrifices as priests. They don't do it in the same way that the ordained priest does, the priest who is conformed to Christ ontologically in his very soul because of the holy orders that he receives. But nevertheless, even though, even though the, the baptized aren't priests in the same way that a priest is, they are still truly offering priestly sacrifice. They have been enabled to do this because they've been integrated into Christ who is the high priest. Now this has huge implications for how you participate at Holy Mass because the way you participate should reflect your priesthood. You should therefore be participating with that full, conscious, and active participation but doing so as priests too. 
Sometimes you can look at it this way to help clarify what your role as a priest is at Holy Mass. It's not the same as the one that Father has up there at the altar, but you're still priests. Christ, the high priest, is always at work in Holy Mass. He is the true actor. Every word, every gesture is his. So sometimes, up in the head of the church, which is the sanctuary, you will see Christ acting as the head of the body in the person of the priest, who is Alter Christus. But you will also see Christ and hear Christ in action in the body of the church, in Christ's body, which is the congregation. He takes your voice, he takes your action, and he takes your receptivity, and he makes it his own. So Christ, who is the high priest and the victim, is also at work in you, in the baptized people there in the congregation. And so, then when we come to certain moments of Mass, you can understand your role in it, even if you're just listening or watching, a little bit more clearly because you're priests too, and you are participating in that sacrifice in your own way as a baptized person. For example, let's just take one moment, the offertory at Mass. Now you can, and you must, consciously unite yourself and your sacrifices to what the priest is doing in preparing the host on the paten and the wine and water in the chalice. You have to watch attentively and listen attentively and prayerfully, actively joining yourself in your mind and heart to what is going on right there on the altar. And just as we had earlier that contrast about the divinity of God and the hum our humanity in a union, we see the wine, which is the symbol of divinity, and the water, which is the symbol of humanity, being mingled in the chalice, but mingled in such a way that the humanity doesn't obscure the divinity. In fact, divinity actually takes the humanity and elevates it. That's why we have just a tiny little bit of water is poured into the wine, so that the water is actually transformed into the, what the wine is, rather than overwhelming the wine with its waterness. And so what you can do, as that symbol of humanity is being mingled with the divinity in the chalice, in that, that thing of sacrifice, you can join yourselves and what's in your mind and heart and all your needs and your hopes and your desires and your sufferings and the intentions that you have for other people. You can join yourself and all those things to those little drops of water and put them into the chalice together with the priest putting that water into the wine. Join yourself to those little drops of water to be taken up in this great reality to be transformed so that Christ will transform all that you are and all your hopes and dreams and things that you love and uh, people for whom you're concerned and, and all your joys and uh, and expressions of thanksgiving and your needs, everything, everything that you have. Join them to those little drops of water that the priest puts in the chalice. Remember, you also are priests offering sacrifice. And so join yourselves very actively to everything that happens at Holy Mass. It's so important that you do so. Bring flowers of the rarest, bring blossoms the fairest, from garden and woodland and hillside and dale. Our full hearts are swelling 
the praise of the loveliest flower of the I've just returned to Rome from the United States. I flew back for a short week in order to attend the funeral of Monsignor Richard Schuler at St. Agnes Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was a grand event. There were, I would say, about 120 priests or so present there, and Archbishop Flynn came. Uh, the Mozart Requiem was used as the music for, for Holy Mass, and it was a great event for a great priest who has now gone to his reward. That as a result of this quick trip, I, I was there just long enough really to start getting over my jet lag, and then I flew right back to Rome, and I am now overcome again with the other sort of jet lag, so I don't even know where I am right now. I pity these people who have to make uh, quick and uh, frequent and rapid trips back and forth between continents. I don't know how they do it. But at any rate, last night uh, I attended a wonderful reception here in Rome uh, in honor of the Honorable James uh, Nicholson, who had been uh, the ambassador of the United States to the Holy See, and he is now the Secretary for Veteran Affairs. And it was a very grand event, and there were uh, many interesting people there. It was sponsored by a group called Republicans Abroad. And uh, today I will be meeting uh, a blogger, a fellow blogger, a priest from uh, England called, named uh, Father Tim Finnegan. He has this wonderful blog called Hermeneutic Continuity. And I'll be meeting him in just a couple hours. And uh, that should be very nice. We'll probably go out and have something to eat. And uh, no doubt I'll give you reports on it later on. But I'm going to sign off here. I hope that you'll come and visit the blog, WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. I'm uh, very grateful for your participation. I'm, I hope you're getting something out of these podcasts. And I look forward to seeing you at the blog. Bye bye now. Yeah.